Hey, uh, welcome to Four Points Church. My name is Pastor Russ. I have the honor of getting to serve as the senior pastor here. I want to... Um, I try, to, I try to be honest as the Lord's working in me, and I, I just experienced in this church for a year now. We, we've been a part of Four Points for a little over a year, me and my family. I just am extremely grateful for what God continues to week in and week out do within the congregation. Um, you guys are such an encouragement uh, to me and my faith, and you galvanize me in small ways of things that you do uh, to keep going hard after Jesus Christ. And I just want to thank you. Uh, for imperfectly but continually following after Jesus. Uh, because the best I know to do is imperfectly but continually go after Jesus myself. And I'm just so encouraged by your generosity. You were able to provide almost, I think it's 71 kids now that we've provided Christmas for this year. We can celebrate that. You can put your hands lightly together or loudly together for it. Um, we fed in our community almost 1,000. I think it was like right at 800 people is what it ended up coming in at uh, at Thanksgiving um, through donations and stuff that you do. And then on, to- on top of that, uh, through the food drive we had last fall, we've been feeding 60 kids a week in public schools <coughs> over the weekend who don't get meals. Um, and and I, I feel like the service of the church brings great worship and expectation in the church. And that's what's been fun is watching you serve and it overflow into just an exuberant praise that's come out of you. And so when we get into moments like this, man, I, I seriously, I look forward to Sundays and it has nothing to do with football at one. It has everything to do with this right here. It's just such a joy and a refreshment to my spirit. So thank you for making a church, uh, making a church atmosphere through the spirit of God that I want to come and be a part of. So thank you guys. Can you thank each other for that as well? Yeah. If you have your Bibles, open up to Genesis chapter 25. We're doing a series called Hot Mess Christmas. We've been looking at uh, last week and this week and the next few weeks to come. Uh, a family that has a father named Isaac, a mother named Rebecca, and two sons, Jacob and Esau. Some of you may be familiar with this story, but they were brothers who were born rivals. Jacob comes out clinging to the hill of Esau. There's this war that's happening within Rebecca's womb before they're born, and the Lord actually gives some wisdom as she seeks God and prays to God as to what was happening. She didn't understand what was going on in her family, so she went to God about it, and God gave her an answer that within her belly, she thought there were just going to be two children that would take away her loneliness, but there were actually two nations. And those nations would be rivals and at war. Now, it doesn't help matters that not only is this something that God knew was going to happen, but that the parents interjected themselves into making the sons greater rivals than they needed to necessarily be growing up. Rebecca loved Jacob. Isaac loved Esau. They favored them to a point that the other child felt like they had to earn the love of the other parent. Because it was uh, unashamed uh, in its love and adoration to favor one over the other. And so we talked about some tough tensions last week. The idea that you're naturally going to connect with some people over others. And that sometimes translates to your kids. And though you love your kids equally, you always love them differently. And it's our job to recognize that when we struggle to connect, we have to push in intentionally in order to build relationships with those kids in our lives that we don't necessarily just immediately, for whatever reason, have a chemistry and connection with. So we've got a divided family. Uh, Rebecca is on team Jacob. Isaac is on team Esau. And they grow up. 
and as they grow up, the rivalry begins to grow. And we're going to look at that in Isaiah, uh, excuse me, in, I like the name Isaiah, obviously, in Genesis chapter 25, uh, picking it up in verse 29. Genesis chapter 25, picking it up in verse 29. Let me make sure I've got it. Yes. One day, Jacob was cooking some stew. Esau arrived home from the wilderness, exhausted and hungry. Verse 30, Esau said to Jacob, I'm starved. Give me some of that red stew. Then we get this weird caption. This is how Esau got his other name, Edom, which means red. All right, Jacob replied, but trade me your rights as the firstborn son. Look, I'm dying of starvation, said Esau. What good is my birthright to me now? But Jacob said, first you must swear that your birthright is mine. So Esau swore on an oath, thereby selling all his rights as the firstborn to his brother Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil stew. Esau ate the meal, then got up and left. And he showed contempt for his right as the firstborn. Now this is a very interesting story. It's like the highest priced meal than you could probably imagine. Now, you and I could read it and immediately say, man, what a foolish decision on Esau's part to give up a birthright for such a little momentary thing. But today, what I want to talk to you about is the dangers of short-sighted living. So if you have uh, notes that you're taking and you're trying to write in a title, I want to write to you and speak to you on the subject of the dangers of short-sighted living. When you live short-sighted, there's a great danger, not only to you, but to those that are around you. Uh, Verse 30 gives us the insight into this story. Esau comes in hungry and starved for various reasons. We'll discuss them in just a moment. And he sees some stew. Uh, Many theologians would argue that this is perhaps the favorite dish of Esau, that maybe, given the character profile of Jacob, He knows that Esau has been away hunting for a long period of time. He'll come home hungry, and being a deceiver, kind of in the mold of his mother, Rebecca, he would have have made uh, Esau's favorite meal so that the aroma of it would be filling the camp as he comes in. Nonetheless, we know that Esau has eaten it frequently because as you read in verse 30, it says, Esau said to Jacob, I'm starved, give me some of that red stew, and this is how Esau got his other name. So apparently, red stew was Esau's weakness. For Samson, it was Delilah. Uh, For David, it was Bathsheba. For Esau, it was red stew. And I would submit to you that there is an area in your life where we have a particular weakness. For instance, right now, I know that there is a running out of days, almost a crisis, if you will, that is happening in our country. Chick-fil-A is only going to have the peppermint milkshake for a few more days. And I understand that that's about 600 calories in a cup. But when I drive by a Chick-fil-A and it's not a Sunday, which eliminates some of the opportunity I could have had to have extra shakes, and I have in my change jar exactly $5.63, It is unreasonable to think that I would drive by such a unique opportunity with this limited time that I have to access it. How about you? What are the things in your life where you struggle to have impulse control? Uh, This is the season where we lack 
impulse control. For some of you, you go buck wild on presents, and then you have to have several moments throughout the holiday season where you pull presents out to assess the damage of what you've already done before you go and do further damage because you can't even remember everything you bought. So it's a particular weakness. Uh, I love Christmas tree cakes. I, for some reason, all my illustrations go to food. And they only make them suckers for about 30 to 45 days, and now they want to blame everything on a shortage of something. I don't know where the shortage is at, but we need to crank out more Christmas tree cakes and get our priorities straight in this country. <laughs> when I go by uh, a food lion and there's a box of Christmas tree cakes, I undoubtedly will buy them, uh, even if I don't necessarily have the margin. I've got one amen in the back. Uh, some of you, I guess you've not discovered the bliss of one of these beautiful terrible for you cakes. Um, here's my point. For me, it would be like driving by Chick-fil-A on a Sunday and seeing that it was open. I would pay a premium for that experience because I know that it's something that I cannot readily uh, have access to. For Esau, he comes home, he's hungry, and as he comes in the door, he recognizes that his favorite stew is being cooked. And then he's given the steep price, the premium that he'll have to pay in order to have it. And what I've learned as I've studied this story this week is that there is a truth within me that you and I maybe can relate to, and that is that we are often willing, often because of short-sightedness, to compromise our values and overpay for certain things at certain times. I can resist it one day, but you catch me on a bad day, and I'll overpay and sacrifice my legacy, I'll sacrifice my budget, I'll sacrifice my family just to have it, because there's something inside of me that at times rises up when given the opportunity to where I'm willing to pay just about any price to have the momentary satisfaction that comes from it. Maybe you can relate. You see, this is how we ended up with videos in the early 90s of Black Fridays where grown women, usually docile normally in their normal life, end up giving each other black eyes and trampling over people to get to towels within Walmart because they're on sale. And so I, I want to submit to you that there is a danger that you and I can fall into that has big implications on our legacy that could affect our family, not just for a year, but for a generation. Short-sighted living causes you to overestimate the value of things, to uh, sacrifice at higher levels in ways that you shouldn't. And what you end up having in the moment of sobriety that comes after the short-sighted moment is a brutal reality of a life that has been devastated by an inability to have a vision that is greater than a moment. In the book of Proverbs, it says, where there is no vision, the people go unrestrained. And for you and I, there is a need for a settling vision that allows us to have a view of something that's worth sacrificing for in the moment. As followers of Christ, I want to submit to you that we've not been called to live for this life, but to live for the life that is to come. And if we do not get a vision for what is to come, then it will be very hard to resist the temptation to make it all about what is now. And when we make it about what is now, what we end up doing is creating children that, gra that grow up with a lack of vision for something greater, something worthy to give their life to. So what they end up doing is getting the same 9 to 5, trying to make the same amount of money or more so that they can build houses that are bigger and live lives that in eternity will not echo a glory to God. And my passion and my concern is that every single one of you have been created in Christ to live a life that will give a praise to him in the life that was lived on this side of eternity, on that side of eternity. Maybe you've never studied it and you've never seen it in the Bible, but if you study the book of Revelation, 
One of my favorite parts is at the Heavenly Feast. It has this moment, this break, where everyone is gathered around the table of the Lord. And it says something very interesting. It says, as they're gathered around the table, they began to sing the songs of Moses. What an interesting concept. We're in heaven. We're at the heavenly feast with the Lord. Everything that is wrong has been made right. And we begin talking and singing the songs of Moses. I I want you to get this picture. The idea is that there is a day coming where in eternity there will be a moment within that heavenly reality where we begin to look back on God's faithfulness within history and time. And the idea that's being expressed in the book of Revelation is they begin to lift the cup and say, hey, I was a murderer who was hiding in the backwoods of nowhere. And in a burning bush, God spoke to me and called me to go to a people that I had abandoned. And in power, he set us free. And we were in bondage. And we didn't have a hope. And we didn't have a future. But he broke us free from the most powerful uh, pharaoh in the entire world, the most powerful nation in the world. And we walked through on dry land as he crushed our enemies behind us, giving us a new history and a new reality and a new hope and a new future that we didn't even lift a finger to give ourselves. Then in the wilderness, he took care of us. He rained down manna daily so that we would have food where there was no food to be had. And he sustained us in the wilderness even though we didn't trust him for the inheritance that he desired to give us. But then he walked us in after 40 years of wandering into this land that we could not have dreamed, dreamt would be for us. And he dropped the walls of Jericho without us even throwing a rock at the wall. And he gave us a land that overflowed with milk and honey so that we would be a blessing to the nations around us because of the blessing of the God who was with us as he established us on the earth. It's amazing to think. The idea, and as I've studied it, it leaves this suggestion that we continue throughout history. And perhaps the first, I don't know what it will look like as far as time or how we'll experience it as far as time, but perhaps the first uh, uh, few hundred years will be nothing but praise to God of, and he did this, and he did this. And, And maybe you and I then get the opportunity within this story to raise the cup and go, look, we we were on the 101, this little group of people that were scattered and ragtagged, and, and God was faithful, and he showed up, and in his mercy, he delivered us from addictions, and he reconciled and saved marriages, and he brought up a generation that were greater than us and took the gospel further than we ever dreamed it would go, and churches were planted because of what he was willing to do through us, and he loosed our grip on the things of this world, and we were eclipsed with the vision of heaven. And as a result, in little amount of time, God did a great work that now is a praise to his goodness in eternity. And and I want to say that to you because if you're not careful, you could become so short-sighted that you sell that moment for a bowl of stew. Right now, some of you for lack of vision, are selling that eternal praise for porridge. So I want to warn you about the dangers of short-sighted living that we see in this story. Uh, Four signs is the way that I've entitled it, of short-sighted living. When you get short-sighted, catch yourself with these four things. Number one, when you get short-sighted, you are always tempted to exaggerate the need. Now, the easiest way to point out how this happens is to talk about your kids. Because how many of you have been in a Target, 
a Walmart, a Kohl's, a TJ Maxx. You already know where I'm going with this. You're walking through the aisle, and you're there to get things that you, which we could need. That we we're looking for the word need there. That was, I was hoping for a symphony of people that would go, need. But, but I think you know there's a setup here, so you're... you're you're getting quiet on me. So we go in because we have a need. There's something that we need to get. Now, we didn't necessarily need that extra Ray Dunn collection of coffee mugs that's in the buggy, but we convinced ourselves that nonetheless, too personal, that we needed, we needed that. Then your kid, walking in the shadow of the parent who needs all the things that happen to be in the buggy, grabs a piece of plastic from a foreign country that has been molded into the image of something that was a choking hazard for the dog and says, I need this. Ever been there? And you in your mind know the last thing they need is more plastic for you to trip over and say unholy things in the middle of the night in your house. But they double down. And with tears and raised volume to try and embarrass you into the purchase, they let you know that they really, really need this. To which you then try to reason with the three-year-old. Which doesn't work well, ever. You, you, you almost try and bribe them. Well, if we get out of here and we don't spend our money on this, we can spend our money on more peppermint milkshakes from Chick-fil-A. And what ends up happening is this back and forth where you're exaggerating the need and trying to give reality to the person that lacks reality of what their actual needs are. You see, Esau either has a pace problem in his life or he is exaggerating his need. Either he has stayed out too long as a skilled hunter and pushed himself to the brink of starvation, or he's exaggerating the fact that he's starved, but he's not starving. And more than likely, he's doing what your kids do whenever they miss a meal or it's 10 minutes late. When they look at you in the car and say, I'm starving. And then as a sympathetic parent, you say, you don't know what starving is. I'll take you to some foreign country that's underdeveloped and you'll learn what starving actually is. You see, more than likely, the problem in Esau's life is not pace, but reality. He's exaggerating what he Needs. He's become so consumed with his immediate need that he has to have it or he will die. Now, before you make fun of him, let's be honest about us. How many of you have had, uh, have had to have that relationship or you would die? And as a result, you compromised your personal values and boundaries because you had to have them or you couldn't live on. How many of you had to have that pay raise? or you would die. And so you took that job, not considering the cost and the effect of time that it was going to pull you away from other things in your life, thinking that money would equal happiness and it would give a, a salve to the soul that you lacked. And so you took the job and sacrificed time in places where you didn't have to take it away so that you could have that job. But you had to have it or you would. How many of you had to have that car? Or you would die. And so you end up at the dealership, which they are masters of, and they didn't let you leave because if you leave, this one won't be here. Let me let you in on a little secret, even in a, a supply chain thing. They're still cranking them out every day over here at BMW from what I hear, and they can make another one. But nonetheless, they keep you there, and they get you motivated there. And then they tack on all the extra charges and all this extra stuff, this VIN fee and all these other stocking fees and, and advertising fee, and all this stuff gets thrown in at the end. And that car that you thought was the deal that 
that you've haggled them down for four hours on now cost the same exact amount of money, if not a little bit more than you had originally agreed to, but you have to have it or you're going to die. See, it's getting personal, so you're getting quiet. It, but you had to have it, so you... And in that moment, you lost sight of reality because of an exaggerated knee. I, I had a pastor friend tell me, he said, we're the only country in America where you'll see two weird things. People that have cars that work, trading them in for other cars that in their minds work better. <laughs> and people that have no homes who are obese on the street. Now, I don't know why I threw the second part in there because I was just like, okay, that's cool. But, but my point is, think about how many things aren't broke but you replace. See, by, by nature, that wasn't a need. That was a want. You didn't need that. You wanted it. You wanted the upgrade. We sing songs about needing the upgrade. I got to spoil my baby with an upgrade, you know? Like, so we, instead of a normal date night to Bojangles, it's Applebee's and <laughs> that kind of stuff. So, so if, here, here's the question I want you to consider. Are you currently in a state of having an impatient spirit that is causing you to become vulnerable to short-sightedness? Have you become impatient about your current relational status, about your current financial situation, about your current vocation, about the current season of life that you're in to where you're looking for anything that can, in your mind, give you a break from reality? See, a vulnerable, an impatient spirit is a vulnerable spirit. And marking agencies know this. Marketing agencies know this. They know at Christmas what they do is they try and get your kids dissatisfied with what they have. They don't already play with what they have, but they need more. And if you don't get them this more, then you won't have a merry Christmas or a happy New Year. Get this car, put a huge bow on it, and your marriage will be fixed. Your Christmas will be the best ever. Get this toy, this technology, this style of shoe, and your kids will feel loved, and they'll grow up thanking you instead of ridiculing you for all the times that you failed as a parent. You see, this is what marketing agencies know, that a lot of us have brokenness in our lives, and in, we are susceptible to being deceived into thinking that stuff can fix what's broke. But Christmas and purchases cannot fix what's going on within the human soul. How about you? Are there things that you are currently compromising your boundaries and your values and overpaying for because of an exaggerated need in your life? When you're short-sighted, number one, you exaggerate the need. How many of you are being short-sighted right now? Number two, when you're short-sighted, you ignore the big picture. When you're short-sighted, you ignore the big picture. Esau comes to uh, Jacob. He asks for some porridge. Esau said to Jacob, I'm starved. Give me some of that red stew. All right, Jacob replied, trade me your birthright. Okay, we went from it's dinner time, I need a meal, to give me your entire inheritance. This is absurd. Why would anyone agree to that kind of of deal. Well, you have to lose sight of the big picture. You see, this was not uh, not never uh, just a bowl. This is not a bowl of porridge that's never going to run out. It's not like he's walking into something so unique that it's of equal value to the cost of it. He's not going to eat this bowl of porridge and never hunger again. He's going to need another meal within a few hours. He's going to need another fix that will help him through. You see, that's how the lust of the eyes work. When you, beget, when you get in lust with something, it crops out reality, and you can't see beyond the moment, so you have to have it, and then you make mistakes, and when you sober up out of that moment of reality, you realize you've 
pay too much. You've been duped into giving up something that you never wanted to give for what you have received. You see, the lust that he had cropped out the reality that he needed. Ask people who have had an extramarital affair after they sober up off the lust of it. In the moment, they weren't thinking about the long-term impact that it would have on their life and their family and their legacy, much less considering uh, having consideration of the other person's family that's involved. Instead, their eyes are blinded to reality. They're zoned in, and in their mind, they have to have this or they'll never be satisfied. They have to have this or they'll always be lovesick. And there's nothing worse than being lovesick in a moment, so you've got to cash out everything to purchase it. And what you end up with in that moment is the big picture being eliminated. James chapter 4, verse 1 says this, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is the source not your pleasures that wage war, your lust, in your body parts? It goes on to say, you want and you war because you don't have, you divide because you don't have, and in your families right now, it's the effect of lust that's ignoring the big picture of the cost of that one thing, that one part of the inheritance, that one part of the things that you had to have, that one bit of affirmation that you didn't receive that caused you to divide from an entire family that are around you. You see, lust attempts to get you to sell your future for the promise of not missing out on a current moment. Lust gets you to sell your future for the promise of not missing out on a current moment. That's the draw of lust. It makes one moment feel like the defining moment and factor of your life. And so all of a sudden, what should be priced at about $7.95 comes at the cost of an entire legacy. Comes at the cost of an entire inheritance. You see, the truth is, your life is not defined, it's not defined by moments, but by the God who is with you in the Holy Spirit in every moment of your life. So listen, if you miss out on a sale, that's not going to define your legacy or shape. It, it, it actually could hurt it, but it's definitely not going to define it. If you, if you miss out on having a relationship with 100 people so that you can have a real deep relationship with three, trust me, sometimes less is actually more. And contentment is a gift that God gives us whenever we're satisfied with where we're at and what he has given us in our life. And for some of us, the temptation of lust has put us into a position where we're just like Esau. Look at verse 34. After he receives the uh, stew, then Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil stew. Esau ate the meal and he got up and left. He showed, listen to this, contempt for his rights as the firstborn. He showed contempt for it. He didn't value it. He didn't understand its value. He didn't cherish it. He didn't desire it. He didn't protect it. It was just a, a secondary thought. And for some of you, you can relate to this. How many of you, when you were younger, had something of great value in your possession that you devalued because you didn't know its true value? Or how many of you, when you were younger, overvalued something that was in your possession, <laughs> which is maybe more relatable, and as a result of overvaluing it, you cherished it, and in cherishing it, devalued what would actually be of greater value later in your life. I'll never forget the first day of college. It was an eye-opening experience. And the reason it was so eye-opening was because uh, people paid money to be there. I went to public school, and no one had to be there except for state mandated they had to be there. And so there were like half the class sleeping. So I went into my freshman year of college, and I thought, well, I'm kind of tired. I may take a nap. But nobody else was napping. 
which threw me off. Like, why aren't y'all sleeping? What do you know that I don't know? And what they knew was there was a value to the education that they were paying money for that perhaps I had undervalued when it was free to me. But now that it was costing, namely, my parents money, there was this rude awakening that perhaps I was undervaluing education. Anybody in the room ever been there? You had something in your possession that was of value that you didn't value. It's stuffed in the junk drawer that you pull out later to realize that grandpa's old coin was actually very rare and quite valuable, and you just had it sitting out there in a trash drawer that could have been thrown out at any point in time. Well, the same's true when it comes to God's plan for your life. God desires that you and I will live in step for his purpose and his kingdom. And we've been given the Holy Spirit so that we would be equipped to be kingdom citizens on this side of eternity. Right now, your life is not a summation of what you can do, but what God can do in and through you. And if we're not careful, we can devalue the fact that God has put his treasure in earthly broken vessels and jars like us, and as a result, miss out on the spirit-filled, spirit-led, and empowered life. All because we're too consumed in overvaluing our flesh and what we think is good to be consumed as kingdom citizens with what God knows is good and what will actually echo in eternity. So the lust of our flesh gets us consumed with overvaluing this world, and then we end up missing out on the value of walking with the God of eternity in temporal time. How many of you today, because of lust and dissatisfaction within your spirit, have gotten so short-sighted that you can't see God's kingdom for your own that you're trying to build that's getting in the way? I'll pause for effect to let you marinate on what we've just thrown out to you. You see, right now, some of you are sacrificing a legacy for a moment, a legacy for temporary satisfaction, and as a result... What ends up happening is instead of building up a godly legacy of God's work and a witness to that work in your life, you give an erratic or non-existent legacy to the work of God around you. Not because he didn't desire to show up and go to work in your life, but because you refused to allow him through submission as you took up your cross and followed him to have his way and his will in your life. This is why right now I would submit to you, you need a group of people who are likely not your peers, who are able to look at you and help you when you lose sight of the big picture. They're able to help you in a moment when you're losing it and thinking that this moment, this thing is everything to help you get some perspective on what actually is happening in that moment. My friend called the other day on the phone last Saturday night, right in the middle of the ACC championship game. That's how you know he's a friend. I took the call left the football room where everybody was hooting and hollering because he was going through something that felt like it was everything. And within about 25 minutes of listening to him talk and just asking some questions, he came to the realization that what he thought was everything may not be everything at all. And he was able to walk himself back from the lust of that moment of thinking he had to have control to realizing there's not much we ever control and that's okay and we can have trust that in that moment whatever happens God will work and it will be ultimately for his glory and Teddy, my cousin's good in it. And so we had to work through the reality of that moment. What happens when you get short-sighted? You ignore the big picture, you exaggerate the need. Number three, you do not seek or listen to sound advice. God puts wisdom around you, but you ignore it. You become the fool that Proverbs speaks of on repeat. And for some of you, this is where you're at. There have been moments where people who love Jesus, love the church, 
and love you in that order have set you down and gone, hey, hey, I, I think you're off on this one. I get that you're hurt. I get that there's frustration. But I think you're a little out of bounds when it comes to your take on what's actually happening. And in that, they're doing you a favor. But you then treat them like an enemy because you're a fool who can't receive wisdom when it's actually being given to you, which is what the Proverbs warns about. How many of you have written off, unfollowed, and ignored people who God actually put in your life not to be a nuisance and not to be someone who gets glory out of your failure, which is what some of the community around you is actually doing. They're enjoying the catastrophe. But he places some people in your life who love Jesus. They love Jesus so they won't compromise his word, his way, and his will so that they can get your approval and your friendship. They're willing to give you Jesus even if it means that you walk away from them not wanting anything to do with them. That's a good friend. Because sometimes I need someone who prioritizes Jesus more than they prioritize our relationship in my life because I've lost sight of reality with the lust of the flesh. Does this make sense? So do you have some someones in your life who love Jesus enough to offend you if it's opposite to what Jesus would call you to? Or do you have people you're calling friend in your life who would take the word of God and manipulate it because they value your friendship more than they value Jesus? See, wise counsel comes from people who love Jesus more than they love you. Wise counsel comes from people who love the church more than they love you. Why? Because there is a bone in our body that gets angry with people over time. And if we are not careful, we can be some of the most vindictive, begrudging, bitter people. And so you need people to remind you that Jesus has not lost control of his church since the foundation of it at Pentecost in the book of Acts. And you may not like everything that's going on with the church, and I would say that there's plenty of things that Jesus would not like back that's going on within his church. But let me just let me just take a quick Okay, just just for a minute, let me remind you that you're married. And the bride of Christ is the church to Jesus. How many of you have some things that you're dissatisfied with with your spouse? Don't raise your hand. But I already know that if if a spirit of honesty broke out, every married person's hand would raise. Because there are some things in that relationship about that person that they do that used to be, oh, endearing and cute, that now are mm, frustrating and annoying. My point in it is you don't get a new spouse. I hope not every single time. And Jesus isn't trading his spouse out because there's some things that aren't necessarily in line with what he would desire. And so you need people in your life that are going to call you back to community because you can't grow without community. And sometimes, let me just be clear, community can be the nuisance that keeps you from wanting to be around the people of God and the Word of God. And so you've got to have people that love Jesus and love church and love you in that order so that whenever you lose sight of reality and you ignore the big picture, they can bring you back to it so that in that moment you don't sell a fortune for a bowl of porridge. Finally, finally, you don't seek out sound advice when you're short-sighted. You don't listen to it. You don't hear about it. Instead, you end up falling into the deceptive nature of selling something way overpriced or buying something way overpriced and getting yourself into something you never dreamed you would be in. Finally, the last step, number four, if you're short-sighted, is you fail to learn and plan better in the future. You fail to learn and plan better in the future. You see, you're, you're, here's, here, let me let you on a reality. All of you are going to screw something up this week. 10% of you will acknowledge it. Some of you are really screwing something up really bad right now. And God's not shocked. Like, like, it is human nature to fail. 
It is a gift of God that in failure, by grace, you learn. And for some of us, the problem is, as a fool returns to his vomit, so a fool to his folly. That's what the proverb says. Is you're repeating mistakes stacked one on top of the other because of short-sightedness, because of discontentment, because of an inability to rest in the presence of God and the work of God and allow God's space to actually be God in your life. So you're losing your mind in discontentment and short in discontentment and short-sightedness. And what's happening right now in your life is you're not learning from the failure. Man, what a waste. Why repeat the cycles of pain? So we have two brothers, Jacob, whose favorite is his mother's favorite, Rebecca, and Isaac, who has Esau, who has his favorite. They've been rivaled and pitted against each other. Here in this moment, the birthright is sold for a bowl of porridge. Esau devalues it. He doesn't understand its value, but he doesn't learn anything from it. Let me give you a quick synopsis. And I want to be very clear and tactical here. In Genesis chapter 26, at the end of the chapter, in verse 34 and 35, uh, there's this whole thing that's going on with water and wells being dug in chapter 26 between Isaac and this other nation of people. It says, At the age of 40, Esau married two Hittite wives, Judith, the daughter of Barai, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon. But Esau's wives made life miserable for Isaac and Rebekah. What ends up happening, and I want to be very tactical. When you get married, you leave your father and mother, and the two of you become one flesh and one family. But some of you, look, you know what you're bringing into your entire existence is a whole lot of hell. You're dating them, and it's not going well. It's dividing the family. It's bringing tension that's not needed that's there. And instead of waiting for that to be worked out and resolved in a dating period, you jump the gun, say, I do, get married, and you're like, well, we'll just forget you guys. Forget the family. Just in 19 years of pastoral experience, this usually goes really bad. Because for a while, you've got the grit to choose them, but then you get annoyed with them. And you lack support around you in the difficult season that you go through. So now you've rushed into a marriage, and then it becomes vindictive and bitter. Marriage gets better or it gets bitter. It doesn't self-sustain. I want to say that again. Marriage gets better or bitter. It doesn't just sustain itself. I do doesn't mean I'm done. It means I will. It's a constant, continued stewardship that you have to give it. It's a big commitment. You should be very sober-minded and prayerful and with wise counsel getting confirmation before you take that jump and leap. And if everyone around you is looking at you and going, I think you should, this seems like a really bad idea. There's some red flags here. And, and, you got all the, and you're like, oh, this, they're all wrong. Okay, when you watch that stupid reality show where, you know, like they set up this really good idea of what if we took 25 people and let them date one person at once? That would go great. And everyone in that house that doesn't necessarily have the connection with the person that they're dating starts coming up to them. What do they start saying? There's just some character issues, you know? Like, just, some re- just be careful, okay? I just, just want to protect your heart. I just want to protect, right? Like three people that are still watching The Bachelor with me right now? Okay. <clears throat> All the rest of you that still watch it like this, like you're not supposed to, but you're like, I can't turn away. It's a train wreck. Are they usually right on the show? Okay. If carnal reality TV show can see a train wreck coming and you've got people that love Jesus and love the church 
are filled with the Holy Spirit and love you in that order. And they're looking at you with grace and saying, hey, hey, this may need to pump the brakes. And you blow right through that. You're, you're not learning. You're not learning. You see, Esau's wives made misery their business for his family. I want to make sure you understand the con. They made misery their business. It's not that they were like having difficult. I mean, Rebecca's difficult, okay? Like if you read about her, she's, and and I'll just be honest, a lot of mother-in-laws, they're just difficult at times. They don't want to be, but they're coping. You took their baby, and okay. Like like it's difficult, but there's a difference between it being difficult and you getting vindictive to where you wake up and think, how can we make them miserable today? How can we exclude them today? How can we hurt them today? What can I post passive-aggressively on social media that will be perceived as a shot by them today? How can I take advantage of their weaknesses today? And that's what's happening within his family. He's short-sighted. He's rushed to the altar. And as a result of it, he's married two women quickly that bring nothing but pain and affliction into the family that he's a part of. Then if you skip over, We'll look at chapter 27 next week. But if you skip over and go to uh, Genesis chapter 28, he's still not learning. In verse 6, it says, Esau knew that his father Isaac had blessed Jacob, and he sent him to Padan Aram to find a wife, and that he had warned Jacob, you must not marry Canaanite women. Guess who Esau had married? So now he feels the sting. I failed. I screwed up. So how do I fix this? Here's his solution. You ready? He also knew that Jacob had obeyed his parents and had gone to Bananaram. It was now very clear that Esau's father, he did not like local Canaanite women. So Esau visited his uncle Ishmael's family and he married one of Ishmael's daughters. Let's just add another into it. That'll fix it. If the first two don't succeed, just throw another in there. So Esau visited his uncle Ishmael. He married one of Ishmael's daughters in addition to the wives he already had. His new wife's name was that. Uh, She was the sister of Nebaioth and the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son. Here's my point. Here's my point. Esau has moment after moment of short-sightedness. He has impulse control. See, won't, get. See, won't, get. And right now, some of your families that you have authority over as parents are being negatively impacted because you have the same impulse problem. See, won't, get and you're over exaggerating the value of whatever the want is and you're selling off a legacy for whatever the want is and as a result of it there's not a legacy to be followed there's not a legacy to be seen it's lukewarm at best and erratic in its allegiance to the Lord I believe God desires better for you that he desires for you to be consumed with a heavenly vision for your life of what God can do through you that that vision should motivate you and cause you to sacrifice freely and joyfully in seasons of difficulty because of what lies ahead being so much greater and of value. And I want to remind and invite you that this is, I believe, God's call for you in Christ Jesus. That we would live a life that is marked by His Spirit, that is filled with His kingdom fruit, that allows for His kingdom to come and His will to be done, not in spite of us, but through us on earth as it is in heaven. But if you're going to live that life, you can't be short Sighted. You're going to need his vision, his purpose, and his plan. Here's the good news. There's grace. And it is sufficient for all your failure 
for all of your weakness and for all of your needs. And if you have failed, the invitation is not, well, leave in that guilt. No, 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 no. There is a Savior who bore the guilt, who took our shame, and He has stood in our place. So lift your head, weary sinner. Lift your head, prodigal who has walked and wondered. You can come home because the grace of God in the Father's eye is looking down the trail and calling and awaiting your arrival. If you don't have a relationship with God, He desires through His Son to extend grace and forgiveness to you. And today, perhaps the beginning of a greater legacy begins with a bent knee that declares a dependency and a need for Him. Our prayer team's here. They'd love to talk with you about what it means to have a relationship with Him. If you need prayer in and over your family, we'd love to be a part of praying over your family. You move as the Lord leads. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Let's respond.